and turn to Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10. Uh, We've been working our way through this Old Testament book for a good number of uh, weeks now. And this morning we find ourselves in Nehemiah 10. I want to uh, encourage you to turn there. I want to begin actually reading in verse 38 of chapter 9, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 28 and continue on in chapter 10. So this is God's people returned. Uh, The temple has been rebuilt. The walls through Nehemiah's efforts, as we've seen through these early nine chapters, have been rebuilt. There's a bit of spiritual revival that has taken place among the people of God there in Jerusalem. And now we see, even from from the end of last week's message, how they have made a covenant with God, a covenant to keep the covenant, we could say. And so we see that in verse 38 of chapter 9, and then we'll continue reading. It says, Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And what you're going to find in verses 1 through 27 are those names. You can see that there. And then in verse 28, we read, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, We will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our fathers' houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord and to bring in the house, also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our heads and our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priest and to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites, and the Levites receive the tithes. The Levites shall bring up the tithe and the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ability to have it preserved And now, Lord, to look back into this book of Nehemiah and see how you have restored and redeemed a people for yourself. And, Father, the calling that you've given them to be distinct in the world in which they lived. 
Lord, help us to glean from it all that you would have for us today, that we might bring glory to you in all that we do and say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when you think about what it means to become a member here at Redeeming Grace, a member of our church, there are two things that we actually ask people do, to do who become members of Redeeming Grace Baptist Church. One of them is that you would agree with our confession of faith, that you would agree with the statement of beliefs that we have that say, yes, I agree and believe the same things you do. Number two, we ask members of our church to sign a church covenant which is a summary of how we've committed to live as disciples of Jesus in this world together. A church covenant. Again, a church covenant is, is different from a confession of faith. A confession of faith is a summary of beliefs that we hold in common. A church covenant is an agreement or a promise that we make to God and to one another of how we will live together as God's people in this location. So church covenants function kind of like a contract. I don't want that to scare you. We sign contracts all the time and hardly give any thought to what we're signing, don't we? You think about that. How many of you have truly read all the fine print of your cell phone contract? Raise your hand. I want to I affirm you if you've done this. Amen, Tammy. Good for you. How many of you have actually read every line of your closing documents on the house that you bought? Several of you. Okay. Your car loan. You, you get the point. Your employment documents. I mean, we sign stuff all the time without giving any thought or recognition to what we're actually signing. Well, when you think about what we ask you to do as a member of the church, signing a church covenant, we're not asking you to do that. In fact, in our membership class, we walk through it line by line explaining what we mean by these things. It's a summary. It's, it's a summary of how we have, understand the Bible to teach about a number of things in Christian life and how we're agreeing together that we will hold one another accountable to these things. Church covenant reminds us that we are accountable before God and to one another and that it does matter how we live in this world as a distinct holy people. The Bible is clear about our calling to be a distinct people in the world. In fact, Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, is praying for his disciples. And he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Set them apart. Make them distinct is what that means. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. That's where we get this idea of being in the world, but not of the world. Jesus has prayed for us that as we're sent into the world, that we would not look like the world, even though we're in the world, that we would be distinct, that our, that our lives would look radically different than the rest of the world. Well, as we have followed this narrative in Nehemiah, we have seen the people of God who were in exile now return to the lands. They've rebuilt. In Ezra, the temple was rebuilt. Now Nehemiah, the wall had been rebuilt around the city. And the Lord, we, we see in the last few chapters, is giving them a fresh start. There's a sense of renewal and revival that is taking place spiritually among the people. People had broken covenant with God. Previously, and they've paid for that through their 70-year-plus exile in 
Persia, in Babylon, and then later in Persia. And now we see the Lord doing a work in their midst. By the end of chapter 9, we see that they are now making a vow, a promise, with each other in writing to keep covenant that God had made with them. They are pledging to live as God's people set apart for God's glory and purpose in the world. If there's any big idea that I would see emerge from a passage like that, like this, it is just that, that God's people are called to be a distinct people who are devoted to God's glory and God's purposes in the world. And as we walk through Nehemiah chapter 10 this morning, I want us to see four ways that God's people are called to stand out in the world as distinct, as unique, as a people who are set apart, sanctified for God's glory in the world today. Four observations that we see with that in mind. The first one is this, that we are called to be a distinct community, a distinct community. In verses 1 through 28, you see this, this list of names, and these are people, priests, Levites, government officials, and then you see later on in verse 28, the rest of the people, everyone else. So these are people who have returned to, to Jerusalem and now enjoying this, this time of renewal. The temple had been rebuilt, like I said, the walls, things are coming together. And now we know that from chapter 8 and 9 that the people have come together several times now in a couple of different assemblies where they've heard God's law read openly and that's resulted, as the people heard the word of God, it's resulted in a, a sense of spiritual renewal as they're convicted of sin and as they confess their sin and as they renew their commitment to the Lord. The seriousness by which they show this is right here in the text. You look at 938, because of all of this, all of this meaning hearing God's law, remembering all of what God has done for them throughout history, and now they're back in the land just as God had promised. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. We're putting our names down, saying, we agree, Lord, to live in a manner that is distinct. So they take this quite seriously. And they basically make a covenant to keep the covenant. A formal and public pledge that they're making here in chapter 10, in chapter 9 and chapter 10. What we find here with this list of names is, is the point of all this seems to be that everyone, all of these individuals, you just read through that list of names, all of these individual people, the Levites, the priests, the government officials, the rest of the people, seem to be taking responsibility to accept for himself or herself the priorities and values which are to characterize the group as a whole. What we find here is we find a community that is being established with definite boundaries and limits. Yes, the first 27 verses are a list of names, but these names, along with verse 28, show us that there is a distinction being made between these people and everyone else. In other words, God's people were to be a distinct people with these clear boundaries that marked them off as the people of God. We're used to setting boundaries, right? We're used to setting all kinds of, of, of boundaries and, and borders. I mean, you think about that geographically, you think it nationally, politically, ethnic boundaries. There's all kinds of boundaries that we make in life that, that distinguish you as whatever it is category you're, you're falling in at that moment. 
Well, the same is true for us as the people of God. Whether those under the Old Covenant here in the Old Testament or believers today under the New Covenant, there are things that we are called to do and embrace that characterize, that mark us off, that set us apart as God's people. Think about that. Even in a, think about the church. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not everyone gathered in a religious facility on a Sunday. There's a distinction between the true body of Christ and those who aren't. Well, what makes those distinctions? Well, first of all, we're marked off by the gospel, by our, our belief in Jesus Christ and his person and his work. The people of God are those who have turned from their sin through repenting and put their faith and trust in Jesus and his finished work for their salvation. That's the first thing that sets you apart as God's people, your embrace of the gospel, your conversion as you come to Jesus. And friend, if you're here today and you're not following Jesus, you're not a Christian, you, you, you think, well, what does it mean to even be a Christian? How do I become a Christian? Well, that's exactly what we preach and teach here is that all of us are sinners separated from a holy God and that God through Jesus Christ, his perfect life and his death on a cross did everything necessary to secure our forgiveness so that if we had put our hope in Christ, our sins would be forgiven and we would be reconciled to God, that we would be accepted, that we would be redeemed, become part of the people of God. But even so, as we're saved from sin, we are saved from sin to Christ and as a result, become part of the body of Christ, the church. And the local church is the visible manifestation of that reality. Now, think about being part of a local church, being part of a local church through church membership, for example. I'm not saying that what we have here in Nehemiah chapter 10 is exactly equal to modern day church membership. I'm not saying that. However, you do see a precedent here, a principle that in Jerusalem, it was known who was in and who was not. There were, there were boundaries. It was, it was clear who belonged to the community of God and who didn't. So there was boundary markers of some kind here, and you see that through them being established in the community of the redeemed. And I think that the question that emerges naturally from a passage like that, when you think about the, the distinction that's being made here, that this is now a community being set apart for God and his glory, is this, do you clearly show yourself to be identified with Jesus and his people? Is that something that characterizes you? Are you known, are you marked by the gospel of Jesus Christ? You've embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord, and you now have been brought and made part of a community. You've been set apart in that way. Have you formally committed yourself to being part of a gospel-believing community? You see, we are a distinct community. The church is set apart, distinct. It's different from the rest of the world. But not only are we a distinct community, we have a distinct authority. Second observation that we see, I want you to look particularly at verses 28 and 29. You see that they take it as far as signing their names to formalize their renewed commitment. It's the first 28 verses. But it's important for us to see what they're committing to. 
Look at verse 28. After the list of names, you see the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land. So they're separating themselves from, but they're separating to something. Look, separating themselves from the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have acknowledged, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. Separating from the peoples of the land in order to be given over to understanding and obeying God's word, God's law. You see, their, their existence as a distinct people was critically tied to their commitment to God's word. Indeed, it was God's word that had created the people of God, and now it was the word of God that would be an authority over the people of God. The Bible was foundational to their life, to their existence. Friends, it's a reminder to us that that God's word is authoritative. The Bible does not merely contain a testimony of God's word. It is God's word. It is God breathed. It is actually God's self-revelation from him to us. Therefore, it becomes authoritative because these are God-inspired words. We live in a world that was no, day, no different in Nehemiah's day, but we live in a world that often idolizes individualism, which makes authority something that we kind of scoff at. When you think about authority, it's not something that you usually normally go, go running into life embracing. Give me all the authority I can, I can stand, right? Because of this, this innate individualistic self-centered desire to be our own God, there's often this, this response against authority. For many even, it's unimaginable that we would yield ourselves under the authority of a book that's so ancient. And yet that's exactly what we do. That's exactly what you see being revealed here, is that the people of God, as they return and are restored to the land, and as they experience this spiritual revival, they are acknowledging that now they are coming underneath the authority of God's law and commandments so that they would be given over to serving him through their obedience to the law. Listen. Even though it may be unimaginable that we would yield ourselves to any authority, but authority that's revealed for us in an ancient text like this, we have to be reminded that everyone has an authority. Everyone. Like, you don't make neutral decisions. Something is informing the choices you make on a given day. It might be your own reason. It might be your own ideas and philosophies and those kinds of things. It might be something you hear in the world, but, but let me tell you, you are not making neutral choices. There is some authority, whether it's you 
or something else that is governing what you think and how you live in this life. And what we're saying, as we see demonstrated here, is that God has given us such an authority in the scriptures. The Bible is that authority. It reveals to us what is true and false, what is right and wrong. It gives us clarity and wisdom in a world that is often marked by chaos and confusion. As our authority, the Bible, not us, defines what is true and good, no matter how inconvenient or embarrassing for you that might be. Think about that practically, the authority of Scripture. We come under the authority of God's Word, understanding that it, it governs our lives, it leads us in all matters of life and godliness. I mean, why do we come in here? Why do we gather weekly as God's people? Because we're encouraged, we're commanded, we're instructed to do that. Why do we emphasize discipleship? Why do we talk about discipleship? We can talk about all the different methods of discipleship. I think there's various ways to go about it. But why even do discipleship? It's because we've been commanded, make disciples. Why would we have someone come up and share this morning about their calling to go to a, a place of, that's unreached in the world and give their lives for the sake of Advancing the gospel and making disciples in a place where the name of Jesus is not even known. It's because we've been commanded. It's the authority of scripture governs and instructs and informs and shapes how we live out our lives. But let's be honest. There are oftentimes, even as Christians, we don't, we don't like that authority. But what you find here is this renewed this rejuvenated people that understands that it is God's authority and God's alone that they must embrace and give themselves to. You see, we have a distinct authority. As God's people, as a Christian and as a church, the authority that we are under is the scriptures that God himself has revealed because it's his very word. We have a distinct authority. We're not like the people in the day of the judges that everyone just did what was right in his own eyes. No, we have a clear, God-inspired, infallible word that governs how we think and how we live and how we follow. A distinct authority. There may be things in your life that, that may be pushing back against or contradicting that authority. And brothers and sisters, that, those are the kinds of things that we have to, to understand that there's always going to be that tension and, and wrestling that things that come up in our lives, relationships that we have, maybe that we're, 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 we're thinking different worldview here and, 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 and this and that. And, and we understand that it's God's word that has to inform and shape how we think and how we live and how we relate in those situations and, and, and circumstances. We have a distinct authority. But not only that, we see, number three, a distinct identity. We have a distinct identity. As the people commit themselves to follow God's law, they certainly will stand out as distinct because of the things that the law teaches and instructs, especially in comparison to the surrounding nations. Their renewed commitment will be visible in how they go about obeying God's commands. Two things that we see, two examples of that I think we can see in verses 30 and 31. First of all, we see their identity is to be marked by holiness. And here in verse 30, we have a reference to what's often referred to as intermarriage. See that in verse 30? 
We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. What's, what's being instructed there is for the people of Israel not to allow their children to marry the children of others in other nations, other pagan nations. Now, it's important to understand that this law was not forbidding interracial marriage. That is a beautiful thing when, when you have two believing people come together in that way. We see examples of that even in the Old Testament. Moses married an Ethiopian. Ruth married in, she was a Moabite, and married into the people of God. And so it's not a forbidding against interracial marriage. It is a, it is a clear command here that they were not to intermarry with other nations because of religious purposes. This was not racial prejudice that was the motivation. It was religious purity to guard the nation against idolatry. And go back to Exodus 34, 10 through 17 to see that established early on. So again, this was a religious motivation, not a racial one. The one, the one command here highlights the priority of religious purity that needed to be established among the people as they stood out as distinct in the world. They had a distinct identity. They were to be a people of holiness and did not need to be influenced by idolatry. This is their problem before. They, when they would intermarry with other peoples, what happened is the gods of the other nations became the gods of the people of Israel, and that's how they, they turned their back on the Lord. And the Lord is trying to guard them, in this case, in this time, against that again, that they wouldn't be influenced by idolatry. These were people around them who did not worship the true God. So he was calling them to be holy, to be set apart for him and him alone. We get to the New Testament, we see this principle in play of not being unequally yoked. Whether in matters of business, which I think actually is the point of that instruction in 2 Corinthians, or in matters of marriage, Christian need, Christians need to be careful not to yoke themselves with unbelievers. If you're unequally yoked, then you're introducing all kinds of challenges and problems into such a relationship. This, this idea of missionary dating is a bad one. Like, oh, I'll date this person and maybe I'll convert them. Just don't even try that. That's a bad idea from the get-go. 2 Corinthians, I want to, to point you to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You see this responsibility, even now as Christians in the, under the new covenant we have, not to be unequally yoked. It's a religious motivation that we would not be influenced or swayed through our relationships and our partnerships to turn away from the living God and serve idols. It's an identity that is marked by holiness and separation from Idolatry. Number two, it's an identity that declares our hope. Look at verse 31. He moves from this idea of intermarriage to a reference of the Sabbath. And if peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. 
And we will forgo crops for the seventh year, the Sabbath year, and the exaction of every debt. We know that the people of God were not on the Sabbath to sell goods among each other. But the situation they find themselves now in Jerusalem is that there's all these other surrounding nations that are coming in and selling goods. And to be clear, through reference of earlier commands, the, 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 the people of God are being instructed not to even buy and sell from those who are not of Israel. See it again, the, the Sabbath observance was an important practice under the Old Covenant. Even the seventh year, the Sabbath year of debt cancellation. And you see it here, you see it again in chapter 13 when Nehemiah makes some changes to preserve the, or, to preserve the observance of Sabbath as the people were profaning it by doing certain works on it. Now, we certainly don't have time to do a full orb study of Sabbath today. But we need to understand that under the Old Covenant, it was given as a day of rest unto the Lord. It was a day that looked backwards to God's Sabbath during the week of creation, but it also pointed forward to a greater fulfillment in the future. Therefore, it became an identity marker of sorts under the Old Covenant for the people of God. Now, there's a lot of discussion even today regarding the Sabbath, and Christians today under the New Covenant are often divided as to how to go about observing it, or even if we should at all. And just a point of clarity, I think I would say we need to give each other some grace there and some space as a matter of conscience. Personally, I do think when you get to the New Testament, there is a change, a clear change, with regard to Sabbath observance. In an encounter with the Pharisees, Jesus declared in Matthew 12 that he is Lord of the Sabbath. As such, he points to how the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, and that we find the Sabbath fulfillment is in him. The writer of Hebrews adds in Hebrews 4, it says a lot there, but in verses uh, 9 and 10, he says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And this promised rest that is being referred to here is a rest of salvation, which is both a present reality and a future promise. So the way I understand the Sabbath in the, under the new covenant is the way that we would observe the Sabbath today is by ceasing from our labors to earn salvation and by resting in Christ through faith. It is a reference to justification, not of some old covenant law keeping that we still maintain today. Now, I do agree that the principle of Sabbath is a good thing to pursue, this rhythm of work and rest. I just don't see it as binding on us in the same way as it was under the Old Covenant, since Jesus is the fulfillment of it. Today, we identify as the people of God not by observing a particular day of rest, but by trusting in our Sabbath hope through faith, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we are set apart, we identify as the people of God through our hope in Christ, who is the fulfillment of these old covenant promises. You have a distinct identity, you also see, number four, a distinct priority. And if you were to pick up in verse 32 and read all the way down to verse 39, through the rest of this chapter, you see verse after verse references to the temple, to the house of God. I mean, it's just there all the way through. And you see it in verse 32. We also take ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offerings, the Sabbaths, etc. 
Verse 34, again, the reference to bringing into the house of our God, the, the temple is all the way through this passage. And then it ends in verse 39 by saying, we will not neglect the house of our God. Their commitment to the temple reveals to us here just how central and much of a priority it was for the people to be engaged in the worship of God and the ministry of temple worship. In verses 32 through 33, this reference to the temple tax, right? It's called putting down roots, right? Temple tax, just a joke, a tax that supported the regular ministry of the temple. And so they had to maintain things, and so the people were taxed. Aren't you glad we don't tax you? There was a temple tax. There were other offerings in verses 34 through 39, a, a bunch of them that are listed here. Tithes that were brought in that supported the worship that was there going on in the temple. See, the first fruits of house and farm were given to support temple personnel. Food had to be provided, but also the support of the work of the temple so that the service of God could be fulfilled. You, you see all of these things just unfold right there in these verses. In essence, what we're seeing here is that in the Old Covenant, the temple and all the activity that happened within it was all about the Lord. It was all about worshiping him and honoring him and knowing that he was present among his people. Well, today we know that the temple is not a building we center our lives around as we seek to honor God's presence. Just earlier I read from a passage that talked about how we are the temple for the New Covenant. We are the temple. In fact, if you go back and read, back in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. It was actually in chapter 6 where I was reading earlier. It says in verse 16, chapter 6, For we are the temple of the living God. We are the temple. So what we can learn from Nehemiah, even in our day, as they had a, a, a physical temple, as they worshipped in the sacrifices and offerings that were brought to the physical temple, what we can understand under the new covenant is that we still have a priority. Worship is central to who we are as God's people. And supporting the work of the ministry through our giving, through our ministry, through our service, and devotion ought to be a priority that sets us apart as distinct in the world. Serving and worshiping the Lord together should be a normal rhythm of our lives. Regular worship, generous giving to sustain local ministry, national work, and global work is not some optional extra to do when it's convenient for us, but rather a regular part of who we are as God's people. So then we should prioritize worship. Our corporate gathering on Sunday is something that sets us apart in this world in that it's a day that we set aside to come together as God's people to worship together. And barring travel or some physical ailment that would hinder us, we ought to be here. Like This should be a priority. It's part of what makes us distinct in this world. And when we start treating the Lord's Day and, and, and corporate worship as if, well, if it fits my schedule, I'll, I'll try, to, try to squeeze it in, then I think what we're doing is we're losing this identity of who we are. We're called to be the people of God. The, the worship of God ought to be central to our priorities and who we are as a people. 
We should prioritize ministry. Think about all the temple work that's going on here. Well, friends, we are God's temple in service today. The ministries, the giftings that each of us have been given as temples of God, we're called to engage in temple ministry by serving the Lord in the ways that he's gifted us and called us to. To call to, to remember to prioritize giving. I just tried to add as many controversial things as I could this morning. Let's, let's just hit Sabbath, let's just hit tithing while we're at it. Well, it can be debated as to whether or not tithing, giving 10%, that's not just giving, giving a tithe is 10%, right? Whether, whether or not that's an old covenant practice that's carried over into the new covenant. The point, friend, is as you read the New Testament, no matter your view on tithing, it's a call clearly to generous giving. In fact, it can be argued that there's, there, there's more of a responsibility to give in the new covenant than there was under the old covenant to some degree. But the point is this, do we prioritize, does our budgets demonstrate our distinction as God's people in this world? Like, if we were to ask, we will never do this. But if we did, just say, hey, bring us your budget. Let's just see how much of a priority the Lord is in your life. What would it reveal? What would we see if we looked at your budget? And you're like, I don't even have a budget. Well, you should have a budget. That's not in the Bible. It's just wise. What would we see? Would, would, it, would, would it seem to indicate that the Lord and his ministry and his worship, the gospel, is a priority for you as a, as a distinct disciple? See, the Lord has given us resources to invest in his kingdom work, and through our worship, through our giving of ministry and our giving of resources, we show and demonstrate our priorities. Our priorities as God's people look different than the world's priorities. And we ought to, to feel that in a good way. We ought to feel that on a regular basis. Our rhythms as Christians look different than those who aren't. Like every Sunday when I leave my neighborhood, what I'm doing looks different than the vast majority of the people who live around me. I guarantee if we were to stop right now and take a field trip to Target or Walmart, whichever one you want, the number of people shopping right now without any thought towards the Lord would look different. Their rhythms are going to look different than our rhythms. Our choices in our calendar with what we do with our family and our children look different, feel different than what the world does. So, who do you live for? You see, the people of God, as they returned to the land, it wasn't just about getting a temple back and walls built. This book of Nehemiah is really not so much about a rebuild effort as, it much, as much as it was a reformation, a revival, a renewal of the people in their relationship to God. What is it, friends, that you live for? Because what you live for will dictate everything about you and how you live your life. Do you stick out in the world in a good way as a follower of Jesus? Are these things that we've considered from this text this morning, just principles even from this passage, do these things characterize you? Do you belong to a community that, that's set apart, that it's clear that you're part of, that believes the same gospel? Are you trusting in that gospel and are you committed 
Are you committed to being numbered among those of the believing community? And friends, trust me, I know that there's often hesitancy there because, because sadly, and all of us contribute to this in some way, sadly, oftentimes the church doesn't, in many cases, look much different than the world. And that's an indictment, and we need to own that, and we need to be responsible for that. But friends, it's still a call that we have to be part of this distinct community. So if you have, like, kind of issues with the church, yes, we're messed up. That's why we need the gospel. That's why we need Jesus, and that's why we come here every week to be reminded of that, to sing about it, and to look to God's word and find help and hope. Come join us. You need help too. As a distinct disciple, you belong to a community that believes the same gospel. As a distinct disciple, you are grounded and guided by an authority that's given by God, his word. Does the word of God serve as your overarching authority? Or do you just kind of take the parts you like, the parts that sound good, the parts that are easy and convenient, and then the others, uh, I'll get there eventually. As a distinct follower of Jesus, we're guided by the authority of God. As a distinct Christian in this world, you are called to a unique identity as you've been called to holiness and hope that's rooted in Jesus. Friends, in what ways have you separated yourself from ungodly influences? And how does that inform what you do in a given day? Does your clear dependence upon Christ set you apart? Or do you still find yourself laboring somehow to make you yourself right with God through, through keeping God's law, which could never be? Friends, do you, as a distinct follower of Jesus, clearly give yourself to newfound priorities that can be seen in how you structure your week, how you structure your budget, and how you give yourself in service to the Lord? Does your calendar, does your budget reveal that God is your priority? Does your devotion and worship, your commitment in giving and serving, does it reveal that Jesus is indeed king? See, the people of Nehemiah's day, they came together. And even to the point of putting their names in writing, they said, we're all in. God has been gracious to us. We don't even deserve to be back in Jerusalem. But because he's faithful to his promise, because he's gracious and forgiving, he has brought us back. Notice the order, friends. It's God's redemption. It's God's reconciliation. It's God's gift of grace that establishes the people of God as the people of God. And then he gives them their word, his word to follow. It's not the other way around. They say we're all in. Frank, can that be said of you? If we were to have a list like this, would your name be on it? And would you be willing to say, yes, count me in? Because the Lord, the Lord is the one who matters most. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us your wisdom and for revealing for, to us what we need to know. Lord, it's a 
gift that we've been given to be able to look back throughout the ages, throughout history, and see how you have worked among a people that were so obstinate and so rebellious and so wicked, and yet how you graciously provided for them, how you kindly renewed them and revived them. Lord, it's our, our prayer this morning that as we look, take a look back, Lord, that through these commitments that they, your people made, that we would be a people who look different from the rest of the world, not so we can brag, not so that we can point to ourselves, but Lord, that our distinction in this world would be all for your glory. And Father, that we would be striving to walk in faithfulness to you in these ways, that we would look different. Lord, that, that our desire would not to be obnoxious in this world about trying to be different, trying to, to do so in a way that's, that's just simply foolish. But Father, that we would be a people of your possession, set apart for your glory. So Lord, would you help us in that? Would you convict us of ways that we look more like the world than not? And call us, Lord, to, to, to confess that and to repent and to help us to walk as your people, distinct in the world for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.